Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning. I think I just heard that I'm the wind beneath Darren's wings. That's what I, that's what I will receive that as. <laughs> hey, I've, uh, I've been told often throughout my life that I have a no face. You know there's like yes faces and no faces? You know that? And, and that means even though I, I think I have an okay smile, that most naturally I sort of go on, on the downward trend. And I just want you to know that the garden makes me a yes face kind of person. It really does. Because I'm just sitting here this morning and, and watching Darren and, and worshiping and just watching you guys. And I just can't help but smile when I'm here. And so much of it is because I, I have had the incredible privilege of watching God not only raise up Darren and Alex, but this whole community and continue to raise you up, but to have watched you be born, to watch you take your first steps. It's just an amazing thing. And I do laugh looking back and going, man, they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> I don't know how much faith I had, really. I mean, I'm glad he felt that, but I didn't know. <laughs> Nobody knew. And certainly the team around him didn't know, but God knew, didn't he? God knew exactly what he wanted to do here in this city through this leader in this community. And Faith read this psalm earlier, and there was this phrase that stuck out to me. I actually wrote it down, because I said, man, that is so powerful, the idea of a holy habitation. And, you know, uh, the psalm is talking about a city, literally, Jerusalem. But God tells us he, he doesn't dwell in buildings, he dwells in people. And together, you are a holy habitation here in Long Beach. And I just had the coolest between-service experience I can remember, maybe ever, if not in years. And Darren and I took a stroll down to Lord Windsor, right? And I got to partake of that coffee goodness. But the cool thing was on the way, we're walking, and Darren says hi to about five or six people in houses, walking neighborhoods, inviting them to church. Are you coming? And I'm thinking most pastors are camped out right now in a cushy green room, you know? Most of them kind of go in hiding between gatherings. And here is your pastor out walking the hood and saying, come to church. And I just think that God is pretty brilliant in, uh, in who he called here and what he's been doing here. And I'm just excited this morning to cheer you on to more. And I'm excited to be with you. I'd love to open God's word with you. So if you brought a Bible, um, it's a good idea to get one out. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have some up here in the front near stage. And today, uh, Darren asked me to, to keep it simple, which was great because I that's what I'm trying to do more than ever these days. The older I get, the more I realize the simple things are the most important things and usually the most profound things, right? Usually the best stuff is simple stuff. And not only are these simple things, but they've been very real to me. I want to share with, share with you today some things God has been teaching me specifically over the last couple of years. And they come out of the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I, I'm a worship guy. If you guys know my story, I came up to the ranks in the church behind a keyboard leading worship. But the Psalms are really the worship set list of God's people. Generation after generation after generation, God calls his people to orient to these truths. And they're a bunch of songs, but more than songs, they're prayers that help the people of God both individually and communally together give their, their lives back to God, give their passions to God, give their questions to God. And one of the things I love about the Psalms, and we're gonna turn to Psalm 25, but the Psalms give us such amazing permission to come as we are into gatherings like this 
even bringing questions, doubts, frustrations, fears. I, I grew up in a church that was a good church, but as at least as a kid growing up, I felt like I could really come in with one of two postures, either really excited or just quiet. You know, there wasn't a lot of room for much else. And the Psalms give me great permission to come into both gatherings and to step into a new day as I am with my honest wrestles or passions or fears or frustrations to come as I really am. And we're going to see this in the psalm today because about half of the psalms are called psalms of lament. And psalms of lament are not the upbeat, happy, it's, it's all good psalms. There are those. There are also psalms of reorientation where there's psalms of rescue and I was in a bad place and God called me out of it. He lifted me out of the pit. There are plenty of those. But then there are some that just say, no, I'm in the pit right now. And I'm stuck there. I have fallen and I can't get up. Remember that old commercial, anyone? All right, thank you. It's for the old school crew out there. And today we're going to read a psalm that really is in that vein of lament. And it's a psalm written by a guy named David. And I love David. He's a pretty familiar character in the story of God. And man, he lived a roller coaster of a life. I mean, he was up and down and all around. Um, You know, pretty famous for taking down this guy Goliath with a slingshot then chased by this crazy King Saul, then becomes king himself, and has all sorts of other drama. But what I love about the Psalms is that about half of them he wrote. And there are books that record his history, but the Psalms capture his heart. Psalms capture his heart authentically. Again, in times of elation and in times of great desperation. And today we're going to look at a psalm that he wrote in a time where he felt pretty cornered. And we don't know exactly what episode this was taken out of, but we've got two good guesses because it would seem that he's on the run from enemies. And that was either early in his life when he's being chased by King Saul or later in his life when he's been chased down by his own son who wants to be king, who wants to take his throne. And we're going to see these words are very honest. And I think we're going to see also they're actually helpful for us in terms of how God wants to lead us. Because really today, the simple things I want to share with you are three ways God's teaching me to be led by him. David was a guy who was known for a lot of things. Again, he was acclaimed as a giant killer and a king. He was um, shamed as a guy who betrayed his, his wife, his nation in significant ways. But in this psalm, we see a guy who is just desperate for the heart of God. And that's what God said is, this guy is a guy after my heart. And today we want to discover how to be people after God's heart. And so we'll turn to Psalm 25, and I'd like to read at least the first part of it together. And it begins with these words, Psalm 25, verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember remember me. For you, Lord, are good. And it goes on. And as it goes on, it talks about uh, ways that David feels cornered. He feels like he's got his foot caught in a snare. And again, this is a time where it's very clear that David 
has enemies both around him, but also in some ways he's his own enemy. I've been my own enemy many times. And he's almost caught between both of those realities. People pursuing him, trying to hunt him down, but even looking back on his past, his mistakes, his shame, his rebellious ways. And his posture isn't to try to fix it or flee from it, it's to turn to God with it. And we see that very, very clearly in the very opening line, which is a strong leading line. And the line is this, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you, God, I will trust. And in some versions, I think the King James and others, it says, to, to you, Lord, I lift my soul. I lift my soul. I like that picture. Because the soul in Hebrew culture wasn't just this ghostly thing that's not a part of our bodies. It was much more, it was all of us. It was our essence, the intangible, eternal essence of us, the real us. What's most real about us is how Hebrews understood the soul. In fact, in Psalm 103, which we sang early this morning, a new rendition of an old psalm that begins with, bless the Lord, O my soul. That's also a psalm of David. And do you know that's David calling out himself to worship, which we need to do as worshipers. We can't just wait for the music to get us in the mood or the right lighting or the right people on stage. We have to call ourselves out. And that's what David was doing. I mean, here he was, he had choirs of probably hundreds of thousands of people to get him in the mood, but he says, no, I need to call myself. And he says, bless the Lord, my soul, to worship God, forget not his benefits. And so we see this idea of the soul. And in that case, David's calling himself to worship. In this case, David is saying, God, I need to give it to you. My worship is the sacrifice of my soul. And so he's starting this song, starting this lament with, Lord, take it all, take it all. I can't carry it. I can't handle it. I can't navigate it all myself. And it goes on. And we just get some glimpses. In fact, you don't want to do something real quick. If you have something in your lap, put it down. And before we move on to the next verse, I would like to worship with you just over a moment. And I've discovered as a worship leader and as a pastor, and most importantly, as just a worshiper, that sometimes our bodies actually lead our hearts. Now, sometimes our hearts lead our bodies, where suddenly you just find yourself doing things physically because it's happening from within. But other times when we do things physically, our hearts catch up. And I want you, if you would, just take this posture. Just, just raise your hands to God right now. Just open your hands to God, whether you feel it or not. And this is the posture of that first verse. Lord, help, I put my trust in you. Take all of the reality of my life. Take my soul. And right now, I just would encourage you just to let your heart follow your open hands. God doesn't feel closed hands. He feels open hands. And we're saying, Lord, there's a transaction we want to present ourselves available to today. We want to give you what we can't carry so that you can give us what we need the most, and that's you. Maybe even identify what is the, the greatest thing that's weighing you down. What's the one thing you feel like, I can't stand under the weight of this any longer? Would you give that to him? And with open hands, we say yes, Lord, to whatever you have for us now. Show us how to be led by you, because when you lead us, we find freedom. Amen. Amen. Verse two goes on. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. So we see David's being honest here. He's saying, I'm kind of afraid of being put to shame. I've got these enemies. They're accusing. They're condemning. They're surrounding. Lord, don't let my enemies triumph over me. 
And then David's reminding himself, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. But then we get to the heart of what we want to really explore today, these three simple ways God wants to lead us. And it says this, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And do you know that over the last uh, year and a half, two years, there are not words I've prayed more than those words right there. For some reason, God highlighted those two verses. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Guide me in truth. Teach me, for you are God my Savior all day long. My hope is in you. And within that little couplet of verses, I've found three things that have really helped me. Follow God. Allow him to take the lead in my life. And it begins with this idea of show me. Show me, God. Show me. That's an important phrase, show me, because it indicates that God has something to show me that I can't see for myself. I heard a story uh, years ago about this little kid that went to Disneyland with his dad for the first time. And I would imagine many of us in the room have been that little kid. And you know how exciting it is. And the pulse is racing as you park the car and get on the shuttle and buy the ticket. And finally, you're through the turnstile and they're in that front area where it has the Mickey-shaped plant and it has the train going by. And the kid looks to one side and he sees balloons and pirate swords and Mickey hats and lollipops. He turns to the other side and he sees real Disney characters. Now, they're not the A-listers, mind you. You have to go way, way back to see Mickey and Minnie and the cool people we'll say it's, you know, the Mad Hatter, Shmi, and evil stepsister number two from Cinderella. But there they are. And they're in the costume, the flesh of the costume right there. And this kid is just ecstatic. And then his dad grabs his hand and tries to lead him through that tunnel that gets to Main Street, that gets to the good stuff. Are you tracking with me? And the little kid won't go. And the dad pulls a little harder. The little kid will not budge. And finally, the dad says, come on, we got to go. And the, the little kid says, Daddy, I don't want to leave Disneyland. We just got here. And that poor little kid thought he was in Disneyland, that that was as good as it was going to get. And he was content with balloons and shmi. And can you imagine the, the elation of the dad to grab that kid, take him through the tunnel down Main Street to the good stuff? What's the good stuff of Disneyland? Let's hear it. Space Mountain. I'm just going to lead with that one. What else? What else? Indiana Jones. Yeah, no, small world is creepy. Can we be honest about that? <laughs> My kids will testify. They will not let me take them on small world. Those dolls, they just look sort of dead-eyed or something. I don't know. Anyway, we know that there are amazing things waiting. But that kid would have tragically settled for something far less. And so what David is saying is, God, I need you to show me. Show me things I can't see for myself. And the good news is that's exactly what God wants to do. And we see it in verse 14. It says, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The Lord confides in those who fear him. And this idea of fear isn't scared. It's not spooked by God. It means revere, reorient their lives to him. So the idea is if you can make God the, the center of your reality, the lens on your reality, then God has secrets he wants to share with you the secrets of his covenant and his covenant that word is hesed which just means love more than anything else it just means unshakable unbreakable unfailing relentless love god wants to whisper 
secrets of his love to you. And we see the key word being confide. That word in the Hebrew is the word sod. Now, when I say sod, I, I think of dirt. But that's not what a Jewish person would think. They, they would think of a couch. Sod means, it paints the picture of a, not just a couch, a small couch. Think of a love seat, like a really tiny love seat. I've had a, a very tiny love seat in my office for years. It's always funny when you get two big dudes on a very tiny love seat. <laughs> Things get just a little bit awkward. They're kind of pushed up against each other and I'm sitting there in my nice rolling desk chair just smiling at him. And God is saying, I want to pull you in. I want to confide in you. And the picture he's painting is, is you pressed right up against him. And him whispering the mysteries of his love. He, he tells us in Jeremiah 33, this is a great verse, he says, call to me and I will answer and share with you great and unsearchable things. Things you could never find on your own. And where do we see this modeled? Well, we see it modeled most powerfully in the life of Jesus. In fact, turn to John chapter 5. Remember Jesus, when he is commissioned into ministry, when he goes public, he goes public with this great declaration over his life, his father saying, this is my boy and I love him. And I'm pleased in him before he does any cool stuff. You know that? Before any miracles came, you know, people were healed, water to wine, any profound teaching, God's saying, I am pleased, not because of what he's going to do, but because of who he is to me. And he's known and marked by love. And we see that this love then leads to this interdependent relationship that Jesus has with the Father. It says in John 5, 19, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. There it is. The Father showing the Son. Not only his love, but showing the Son what he is up to and how to partner with him in it. And here's the good news. It doesn't end there because Jesus goes on in the book of John. John 15. Turn there. Turn right a few chapters. John 15, 15. Here's Jesus now not describing his Father. He's talking about us. And he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. And listen, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you see that? So here is this circle of trust. Meet the parents edition, you know, sorry. Uh, this circle of trust between the father, the son, the spirit, this, this amazing symphony, unity. But then Jesus is saying, through me, I want to invite you onto that couch in to that relationship, into that intimacy, and I have things to show you there. And so, quite simply, one of the ways that God has been teaching me to be led by him is to be expected that he has things to show me. And here's what I've noticed. When I create space, he typically does. Like every time. <laughs> every time I create space to slow down, and instead of telling him what I need, we're trying to go meet my own needs. When I slow down to create space, I don't think I've ever come up empty-handed. And sometimes it's just a, a small encouragement. Sometimes it's a game-changing word. And what I've learned to do is, first of all, journal. I've journaled a lot over the last few years, but even in journaling, there's a lot of words, and I've learned to grab particular words, phrases, moments, pictures, scriptures. And I have this box here, and I've just started keeping them in this box, and I just want you to notice, you see these cards, these are moments that God showed me things. It's that simple. 
and I've discovered there's so many card-worthy moments. Like there have been times I've been frustrated. Where's my card? I need a card because I need to mark this moment. God is speaking something intimately to me that I need to be attentive to. Even uh, two days ago, I was reading through Nehemiah and I saw this verse and I knew it was just something God was highlighting over my life. And the verse is very simple. Nehemiah 9.25, just a piece of it. And it says, they reveled in your great goodness. They reveled in your great goodness. And I loved that idea of reveling because I'm the kind of guy that looks ahead and tries to say, what's next? And I felt God was reminding me, no, I want you to look back and not critique. I want you to do even more than just be grateful. I want you to revel. Revel means like really celebrate my great goodness. And instead of looking at all the questions I haven't answered, look at the ones I have. Look at the prayers I've answered. And my wife and I are walking through a season where he has answered so many prayers. And it'd be easy for me to not just look back, but look to the next. And he said, no, revel in my great goodness. That's just one. And guys, I could go through these for the rest of the day, probably for many days. But more than just cards, these are stones that build an altar to God is faithful, God is active, God is speaking, and to build an intimacy with him that creates an expectancy in me to say, Lord, what are you going to show me next? So that's the first thing that I want to encourage you towards is really just ask the question, what's God showing you now? One thing Darren talked to me about a few months ago that I loved, really stuck with me. In fact, I bet there's a card that says this in my box because he said, we love fresh stories. He said, have you ever heard him say that? He says, we don't want to tell stories that are years old or months old. And there's nothing wrong with those stories. It's important to be grateful looking back. But he said, we want to know what is God doing now in the lives of our people? And when they gather as a staff, do you know one of the things they love to do the most, staff and elders, is just tell stories of what God is doing now, right now in the garden. And there's an expectancy that God's calling us to together and individually to say, Lord, what are you showing me now? And to be ready to lay hold of those things. The second thing we see in Psalm 25, the second posture of being led by God is not only that God wants to show us, but God wants to teach us. We want to be taught by God. Teach me, Lord. Teach me your paths. And so there's something that we not only receive, but we begin to sort of act out of and being taught. And if I think about teaching, typically I think about information. I think about school. I was one of those students that drove some people crazy because I could make really good grades without learning much at all. <laughs> I was one of those people that, yeah, I, I know how to dial an A out of this class um, by cramming you know, here and sort of padding information there. And I, I could just sort of navigate my way to a 3.7, 3.8. And man, I'm disgusted looking back at how very little I learned because I thought it was just about accumulating information. And can I tell you, God's not interested in how much information you know. In fact, my wife was the opposite. She was somebody that studied really hard and did almost as well as I did, not quite, but she actually remembers stuff. <laughs> she, she actually remembers the stuff she learned. But she was with a group of people just last night, and she was talking about as somebody that grew up in a Christian home, I'm sorry, not a Christian home, which I would imagine many of you didn't grow up in homes of faith, how there was a, a time when she felt really insecure by all she didn't know. Even as a student at a Christian college, she came in without, you know, three decades, well, I guess not that long, <laughs> a decade of Sunday school and all these stories and flannel graphs and the stuff that was pounded into us. And she came in going, wait, now what's the difference between Noah and Moses? Help me. And there was moments where she felt so insecure. And it's amazing to see God can care less about our information. He cares about our transformation. 
And his idea of teaching is not stuffing our head with Bible facts or God knowledge. He wants to teach us to change us. That's how Jesus taught. In fact, when he comes uh, onto the scene and invites people to follow him, how they best interpreted him, these disciples, was as a rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi, and he's looking to apprentice people. And he takes fishermen and dares them to do something radical, lay down everything that's defined you thus far as fishermen, everything you've known, lay down your nets, take up a new mantle, apprentice. And that was an invitation of high honor in those days because rabbis would only go after the best of the best. Because when a rabbi said, Darren, follow me, it didn't mean go to my class, download my podcasts, I want to give you a quiz. No, it meant I want you to become like me. And listen to this, for Jesus to say, or any rabbi to say, follow me meant I believe you can become like me. How cool is that? And that's the invitation that he offers, and that's exactly what happens. He doesn't get them to pass Bible quizzes. He changes them radically by modeling a different way of life. That's what it means to be taught by God. And we see evidence of that in the book of Acts. Turn there quickly, Acts chapter 4. It's just one of these very cool passages that just give you a visual of what was going on that must have blown people's minds because here we are, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus has ascended, the Spirit has come, it is on, the church is, you know, igniting, and look at the people God is using. Because everybody was looking at the people God was using, they're going, wait a minute, aren't those those fishermen guys? And certainly the religious, scholarly, esteemed people of the day are looking, scratching their heads, and it says it in Acts chapter 4, 13, it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you hear that? The teacher had done his job. The rabbi had rabbied them well because these were different guys entirely. And that's what God wants to do in my life, in your life. And you know that evidence of being taught by God, again, isn't more information, it's a life that's being transformed. And that's not just our work, that's the work of the Spirit in us, but we lean in and say, Lord, it's not just about what you're showing me, it's how you're changing me. That's a great question to ask. How is God changing you? And it's something we're to call out in each other. I've done that with Darren at times, haven't I, bro? Like, I'll just say, man, you are growing in this way. And that's good, because it means he's being taught by the rabbi. So show me, teach me, and the last one is this, guide me. Show me, teach me, guide me. Guide me, Lord. And when we think about guide, we typically think about a journey. But there's a different kind of guide that I'm not a big fan of, and that's a tour guide. I'm one of those people that I have no tolerance for tours. Anybody like that? Like, I just, I do not want to sit in a bus with a bunch of people and, and, you know, drive through the city and make stops and have to follow this group and this one. That stuff just frustrates me because I want to roam and I want to make up my own agenda. And my wife and I were in Italy a couple years ago for our 20th anniversary and I discovered this amazing godsend in its Rick Steves downloadable tours. And Rick Steves is the man. Let me just tell you that. This guy, he's been all over the world. He knows it like the back of his hand. And you can go on iTunes and for two bucks, get a tour of the Vatican. 
So here we are in the Vatican, and there are these groups that have to move really slowly and look at everything. And I can just go pick and choose. It's awesome. And I go stand in front of a painting and see what Rick has to say, and I can pass this sculpture and move on to this. It's my agenda, my timeline, my preferences. I love it. Can I tell you, God has no interest in, interest in being that guide to you. And so often, that's how we want to be guided by God. My timeline, my agenda, my preference. Lord, I want to check in with you. I need a tip here, an answer prayer there. I'll get back to you next week. Can I just put you on pause? And that's not the guiding that David's describing. No, his understanding of being guided would be being shepherded. First of all, because David was a shepherd. But more importantly, he understood that he needed a shepherd. To be guided was to be shepherded. In fact, we back up two psalms. We run into probably the most famous of all psalms. Certainly one of them. Psalm 23, also the words of David. And it says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down on green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I grew up, again, I was a Sunday school kid. I grew up memorizing this verse. I think it was one of the very first, that in John 3.16 that I, I laid a hold of. But do you know for years I completely misunderstood this opening line? Because I memorized it as the Lord is my shepherd, what? I shall not want, which is the, the King James and some other versions. And when I heard that as a kid, what I thought that meant is if I want God, I can't want anything else. <laughs> So if the Lord is my shepherd, I can't want anything. I can't want that Nintendo. I can't want that Transformers toy. I can't want my favorite Rocky Road ice cream. And there's, there's things that I wanted all the time. And it's like, no, 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 I've got to just want Jesus. And I came to understand, you know, as it's translated in the NIV, that no, it's about the fact that when God is guiding us, when he is our shepherd, and we are, when we are dependent on him, we don't want anything because he gives us our wants. And he leads us to wants we wouldn't even be able to recognize or know to want until we find them. He can lead us to green pastures and still waters we will never find on our own. But the deal is this. For him to be shepherd, we have to be sheep. I don't know much about sheep, but I know this. They are utterly dependent on the shepherd. You know, they, they are dependent on the shepherd to guide them, feed them, protect them, get them from A to B. It is a picture of total dependence. And not just to find the still waters and green pastures, to get through the dark valleys. Because we have a shepherd that says, I want you to be utterly dependent on me. I don't want to guide you from an iTunes <laughs> tour guide perspective. I want to lead you and guide you as a shepherd. But you have to trust me even in the times of dark valleys. Because he doesn't go around them. He goes through them. And I don't know about you, that's where sometimes I want to take control. <laughs> that's the times where, where what rises up in me are the very things that I would think are my strengths. I default to my strengths. In fact, years ago, I took something called the Strength Finders Test. If you guys are familiar with this, it's one of those personality things. You're an animal or a color or shape or something. You know, there's all sorts of variations. <laughs> this one is... Uh, your top five strengths, and it's helpful ways. 
And here's what I learned about myself. Here are my top five strengths. Number one, command. Number two, uh, strategic. Number three, futuristic. Number four, competition. Number five, ideation. It sounds like I could, I could run a small country, right? I mean, I'd make a great, <laughs> great dictator. But consider how hard it would be to lead that particular sheep if you're the shepherd. Command. You know, I think I'd like the shepherd's staff, God. Uh, futuristic. I think I know exactly where we need to go. Strategic. And I know how to get there. Competition. And I want to beat everybody else in getting there. And then finally, ideation. Wait a minute. Let's rethink everything once again. And that is often what characterizes my relationship with God. In the midst of the questions and the trials and the valleys, I want to take control, if not escape. But more often, I just want to take control. And to be guided by this God is to recognize that I'm not intended to lead out of my strengths. God's given me strengths that he's going to use powerfully. He's given you strengths. He's going to use powerfully to play your part in the kingdom story, but that's not what I'm leading out of. Paul says, no, you lead out of your weakness because weakness brings dependence. Dependence brings God glory and allows us to be taken places and through places because, again, God wants to take us through the trials. I have discovered that in huge ways the last couple years because my, for my wife and I, it's been a couple years of a lot of big questions we've wrestled with. And we've realized that God doesn't want to give us easy answers. He doesn't want to give us a detour around trials. He wants to take us right through them because James says that it's through those trials he's developing something in us. Completion, maturity, dependence that we were created for but can only be found in following him, not just to green pastures, but through the darkest of valleys. And it's those times where it's tempting to think, well, man, shouldn't I have this down by now? Do you ever feel that way? Shouldn't I have this down by now? Should I be more mature to be able to figure this out on my own? But can I tell you there's some things you never age out of when it comes to your relationship with God? Let me end by saying this. Last night, my wife and I were out pretty late. We came home, and our two youngest kids, we have four kids, 18, 16, 11, all boys and a little girl who's nine years old. And my 11-year-old son and my, my daughter were sleeping in our bed, in our bedroom, because they just feel safer in there when we're gone. So they're sacked out, we walk in, and we have to go through the drill of lifting them out of bed and carrying them to their beds. And can I just tell you, my 11-year-old um, is not as light as he used to be. <laughs> and I'm not as strong as I used to be. And it was just one of those weird moments where I tried to get my arms around him and just to lift him out of the bed was some effort. And I just realized, I was laughing at my wife, just saying, you know, these days are very much numbered. He's going to age out of this. I mean, I'm not carrying my 18-year-old out of his bed anymore. <laughs> that would be weird. But listen to this. We can never be aged out of being carried by God. We can never be so mature. We're at this so long that God says, no, you're on your own. This is what God loves to do. This is how the shepherd loves to lead us is saying, yeah, you're a lot of things, but more than anything, you're my kid. And I am with you. That's what David says, I fear no evil because he is with me in whatever I'm facing. But not only is he with me, he's ahead of me and behind me and carrying me. And so you don't need to fear because fear for me means taking control or looking for a place to hide. Instead, God wants to, as our shepherd, embolden us with a courage 
keep moving forward, knowing that he is in it with us all the way. So this morning, I want to ask this, if you would stand. And one more time, we're just going to present ourselves to God. As I said, this is a pretty simple message. Uh, These are ways that God has been helping me understand how to follow him well. Having a heart that says, Lord, show me. Having a heart that says, Lord, teach me through changing me. And finally, having a heart that says, Lord, would you guide me by shepherding me? Teach me that kind of dependence on you. And I'm going to have Darren come up. He's just going to lead us in a time of response. But the best way we can start, once again, is just opening our hands to God. Because I'm feeling there's some things you need to give over to him today. That's my sense. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.